0: Well, let's begin by reading our scripture today. We're going to read from John 13. Um, I spoke to my wife last week, and she's like, why didn't the resurrection happen? Why are we still in John? And I, I said, well, we're, we're series is in John, and we, we paused for Easter, not paused, we, we stopped at the high point of Easter, and we're just continuing in the book of John now. And last week, Jesse, if you were here, talked about the washing of the disciples' feet Uh, and he gave a wonderful call to what that meant for him and what that means for us. And we're going to overlap a little bit with what he read last week to get to a few more things. So um, let me read this for you, and then I'll tell you what I hope we can accomplish today. So Jesus says this, beginning in verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will see me, seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So this is, as far as I'm concerned, an absolutely massive um, piece of text. It is also massively complex, and it contains some extremely difficult theology. And as I thought about this over the past week, what I was going to say Um, I had to reflect and cut back on maybe all that I could say and just try and say two things. And even in saying the two things I'm going to say to you today, I probably have too much to say. So if you're a student and you're kind of hoping like, oh, it'll be relaxed day at church, sorry. um, (laughs) It's not. It's not. We're going to gear up a little bit. So I think that I will discharge my responsibility to you if I provide you with a measure of clarity on two phrases from the passage we read today. Just two phrases. The first phrase... Um, of the two is the phrase, Satan entered into him. I think if you have some clarity on what that's, what's going on there, I think you'll feel better. Second phrase is, now is the son of man glorified. And so we're going to deal with the second one first because it's more important and because I'm going to deal with it faster. <laughs> so John 13, 31, Jesus says the words uh, now in quotes, now is the son of man glorified. Now that's a curious little word, Now? Now? At this moment, like, why not the cross? Isn't that more the glorification moment? And it says early in John, it says that the Son of Man must be lifted up like the snake in the desert. Like, there's a kind of lifting up, a kind of glorification. We're expecting that. And Jesus says, no, no, it's now. I could think also maybe, like, the resurrection comes out of the tomb. Boom, I'm Jesus. And, like, that's kind of glorious. He says, no. He says, now. And I think that's really odd. So why does Jesus say this? Let's maybe go through some examples. Uh, is he say this because only the good disciples remain? Like Judas is gone and now we can talk for reals, right? <laughs> right? It's like, Jim, would you leave us for a moment? <laughs> do, 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 do. Awkward, awkward walk. Peter, check the door. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Is that, it, it seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Um, Is he glorified now because of the teaching that follows? And this is some really great teaching that follows this. He talks, um, the disciples end up saying things like, now you are speaking plainly to us. It doesn't feel particularly plain to me, but they seem to get something special out of the next five chapters of of speech. Um, Is he glorified because of the coming cross? John does some weird things with the timeline. It's really goofy, like, he says now, but does he mean, like, then or later or when? Like, you're never entirely sure what's going on with John's timeline because he's just, he's just on a different wavelength than us on some of these things. It's funny is that I did a word search for the word glorified in John's gospel, and it didn't help things. Um... <laughs> But there was one verse that helped. I'm sorry I didn't get the reference. You can do your own word search in John's Gospel on glorified, and that will benefit you spiritually anyway. Um, But you do the word search, and you'll find that um, this did not happen until he was glorified, and it talks about the Spirit coming as being the moment of glorification. That's interesting, because the next chapters he's going to talk about the Spirit a great deal. Well, I think what's most likely, actually, as an answer to this, is that Jesus is now glorified because his formal ministry is complete. That's it. Somehow, in accepting the moment of Judas' temptation, the ministry's over. And now he's glorified. And let's talk about this for a moment. Uh, So essentially, because of the betrayal, it's like Jesus closes the envelope on his ministry. It's over. It's done. Everything public he was going to do is done, and now it's just finished. There's just some final tidying up to do. Uh, If you think of it, maybe this is a way to think about it. Many of you have written theses and dissertations and odd things like that. Um, It's written, and you've turned it in. There's an exam to come, but it's over. Like, you can't change it at this point. Maybe that's something of what he means by saying, now I'm glorified. Like, I handed in the assignment, and now I'm here. And some of you are panicking. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry Jesus has you covered, Caitlin. All right. All right. Um, you would get evidence from this from the teachings that follow explicitly. And I want you to note um, that in the coming weeks especially, so chapters, the end of chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17 are all instructions for Christ's absence. All right, now I'm going, here's the stuff you have to do to keep up. <laughs> we're, I was talking with Jesse about this. It's like, oh, yeah, and the Spirit. Oh, yeah, and loving one another. Oh, yeah, there's a kind of like, let's just get this all in there. It's a bit overwhelming sometimes. Uh, but uh, it seems to be moving this way. And we see this also with Jesus being glorified by the Spirit's arrival. The Spirit comes. Now we're going to do greater things because the Spirit's with us, and Jesus is being glorified in us. Additionally, I think that ex- in accepting Jesus's, excuse me, accepting betrayal by Judas Jesus points to his own vindication. And this is one of the reasons there's the explicit quote from Psalm 41. So first of all, John 13, 18 has this little phrase in the middle, uh, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's from Psalm 41. So Jesus has this psalm in the back of his brain, and I think this explains the vindication stuff a little bit. Uh, Let's look at Psalm 41 for just a moment. Uh, One through three, blessed is the one who considers the poor. That's Jesus, looks after the poor, weak, the needy. In the day of the trouble, the Lord delivers him. I don't have to worry about trouble because I've lived a life that glorifies God. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give up to the will of his enemies. Now, uh, the following verses, this guy gets in trouble. It's probably David. Uh, There's some sin. There's some issues. Then there's some enemies coming after him. And then in verse 9, 9, 41.9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So kind of the apex of his trial is that his very dear friend has turned against him. And this is the verse Jesus quotes explicitly to kind of identify what's going on with Judas and what's happening in the story. But what happens in the next verses maybe gives us an idea of the glory. So 41, 10 through 12. But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. That's maybe a little scary if you're thinking about Jesus. Uh, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So, He's being lifted up, he's being exalted, he's being vindicated, that even though this betrayal has happened, the betrayal will prove God's faithfulness. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on with, now is the Son of Man glorified. I accept the betrayal, and accepting the betrayal, I know who God is, I know who I am, I'm fine. And he points to this vindication, and so he glories in this. It's pretty interesting. So let's slow down for a second, and let's think about this a little bit more. In allowing himself to be betrayed by one such as Judas, Jesus shows even more the depths of his love and the reaches of his power. It really is all God's work. There's nothing going on that man contributes to this. God puts the kingdom at the mercy of a traitor to prove that the kingdom's power is God's power. And I don't even know if I understand this so well. But I think that's part of this glorification. Concomitant with this, in accepting this derelict and ragtag bunch of disciples, most of all who will abandon him, the Father's glory is also revealed. So Jesus sits in the room, he looks around, he knows you're all going to drop. You're all going to fail. And he says, now is the Son of Man glorified because you failed. I, whoa. Like I said, I think this is some apex stuff. Somehow Christ is glorified by their falling away. He is glorified precisely because in their fickleness is proved the power of God. It was not human effort that inaugurated the kingdom. And in thinking about this, Jesus pauses for a moment of rejoicing. And I don't understand Jesus' mind. He's, he's different than us, and he sees things differently. But I think there are some helps in other verses. So um, I think Paul's word in Second Corinthians four helps us to see this a little bit. He writes that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The old phrase was jars of clay, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be power will be of God and not from ourselves. In fact, let's read the rest of verses seven through twelve. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Somehow, in the brokenness and in the woundedness and in the fickleness of our lives, the glory of God gets to shine through the cracks. And God's glorified in us in that way. In our brokenness, our failure, our weakness, which is a say, to say, in our humanity, we are privileged most to be vessels that glorify our God. It's in those places of weakness where we become examples of his power and we become testimonials to his greatness. It's not in your perfection that you glorify God. It's where he gets to shine through your goofiness. And so that's why I think it's now that the Son of Man is glorified. Glorified because his work on earth is done. Glorified because he knows the failure of his followers in advance. Glorified because he knows that in their failure and in his obedience and in the coming Holy Spirit, the gaps will be filled. He's going to make up the difference. Greater things are going to come out of this. And he says, unless a seed dies, it doesn't come to life. He knows he's going to die and you all get to come to life. That's pretty exciting stuff. And so in this, God will be made manifest to the world. He'll be glorified. He'll be made magnificent to all. So, now is the son of man glorified? Second phrase. Uh, it's John 13, 27. Satan then entered into him. Satan then entered into There's a then there in the other translations. This is, I think, a little terrifying. Like Satan entered into Judas. And how, how does this work? Like was Satan hanging out in the bread? <laughs> like if I go to the pub and I offer, I offer Jim a nacho. <laughs> Here, take this nacho, mm-hmm. right? Is there, is there some danger involved in receiving food? If Satan's in the bread and we've all eaten from the bread, do you start looking around going, wait a minute, <laughs> I ate this too. This is, this is not a happy picture. Think about it also, does Judas have a choice in the matter? Oh, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> oh, no, Satan entered in, right? What happens in this picture? I think there's some really weird stuff. I think there's actually, um, as I think about it, there may be three kinds of explanation. There's possibly quite a few more. Uh, so explanation A, Jesus causes Satan to enter Judas, Well, that's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Jesus causes Satan to enter Jesus. I think this raises all sorts of really horrible theological questions about God and about the good. Like, can God be trusted? Like, will he do that to us? Uh, Can we trust the gifts that God gives us? Uh, Some really cascading, horrible things. What relationship does God actually have to Satan in these matters? So, suffice it to say, I don't think explanation A is right. Explanation B, I think this is possible, but not, maybe not as likely, uh, is that Satan had already entered Judas, and John is speaking figuratively. Like I already said, he, John's super goofy with time, like when things happen time-wise. So, like, when did Satan really enter Jesus? Like when he went to the Pharisees, and he got, like, he received the 30 pieces of silver, and then Jesus, Judas, like, Jesus gives the morsel, but Satan already entered in. There's kind of a, in the same way that now he's glorified, then, it's, I don't know. There's some weirdness with time. We just don't, we can't say for sure. Um, or third and I'll, so explanation C and I think this is it I think that an act of kindness triggers Judas's latent betrayal and I want to explain this as we go on to put this another way I think that Jesus being Jesus causes Judas to be Judas uh, and I think there's some stuff for us to think about let's talk about who Judas was maybe you've never thought about this let's maybe give what we know of Judas' life story We know, first of all, that he's one of the twelve. He's one of the twelve disciples, and we know his name, Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Now think about the name Judas for a moment. It's the Romanized form of Judah, as in the tribe of Judah, as in also probably a very popular name at that time for Judas Maccabeus, Judah Maccabee, who fought off um, Antiochus and Epiphanes, and he was kind of a cultural hero. In addition, um, he's the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is the royal line. That's David's line, a line of kings and rulers. They're very proud of who they were. Um, so there's a huge mass of people named Judas. There's another disciple named Judas. Remember, they say later, like Judas was there, not Judas, Judas, but Judas, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Judas is a popular name. So to, uh, to, uh, one of every six disciples is named Judas. Don't, don't anyway. Don't worry too much about that math. But um, it's a popular name. Um, It's kind of like uh, maybe after the Second World War, a whole slew of English children being named Winston, right? Oh, what a hero, little Winston. Or like little Scots named Wee Willie Wallace showing up and, you know, oh, we're so proud of you. And like we're naming a child after a cultural hero. And so giving a kid the name Judas is that kind of thing. We're we're proud of what this person's done for us. Uh, Judah becomes, in fact, the root word for Udias, the Jews. Jewish people are named for Judah. That's where the name comes from. He is like apex Jew in some ways by having this name. And also in Hebrew, the name Judah means praise. And I find this extremely sobering. But in a very real way, Jesus is betrayed by the praise of Israel. And I find that startling. At some point, this guy begins to follow Jesus. He becomes part of the inner circle of followers, one of the inner 12. And remember, there weren't just 12 followers. It says in Acts chapter 1, there were about 120 people left after the crucifixion at the time of Pentecost. Uh, when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, there were 72 others who went out. There's a much larger group of people following Jesus at this time. And I want you to think about that for a minute too. When the disciples went out two by two, Jesus, excuse me, Judas went out two by two. Okay. So when the disciples healed the sick on that journey, Judas healed the sick. When the disciples cast out demons, Judas cast out demons. When the disciples preached the gospel, Judas preached the gospel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was in the ministry He did the stuff. He saw all of it. And he was a witness to all the things that Jesus did. He saw the healings. He saw the feedings of the thousands. He watched Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus still the storm with a word. He watched Jesus speak to demons and say, get out. And they did. He saw all of it. He was a witness to all of the things that they did. And he was there. So what goes wrong? We have a couple clues. We have real explicit textual clues, and then we have some suggestive clues. The explicit clue from the text is that money went wrong. This is the stuff we hear about Judas. Money went wrong. So we're told even in this passage that Judas kept the money bags. He distributed the money to people. If you thought about why wasn't Matthew the tax collector in charge of the money bags? Don't you think you put the finance guy in charge of your finances? I don't know. Maybe, maybe Matthew, when he left being financed, he was like, no, 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 no more. I'm not touching money anymore. I don't know. Uh, but Judas is in charge of the money. Judas objects explicitly when Mary spends her extravagant perfume on Jesus. Now, the other Gospels tell us that all the disciples grumble, but they, some of them highlight Judas was upset that this money had been wasted. But then they say he didn't really care about the money, care about the, what, the waste, he, he cared about the money. Um, the apostles say explicitly they think Judas was keeping some for himself. I confess, it's not, I don't want to disagree with the apostles um, I, I don't know about this. Like, when you're living in close quarters with 12 of your best friends, like, you show up with a new watch or something, <laughs> it's kind of hard to pull that stuff off. I don't know. I don't know. What, I, I, don't know. I think they're, they're identifying something was wrong with Judas's relationship with money. And, of course, he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, so money's in the mix with what goes wrong with Judas. A second clue, and this is more suggestive, is I think um, power goes wrong. Something to do with power. We've talked about this over the past months, but if the model for messiahship that's expected by the disciples and by the local Jews alike is one of an invading kingdom, of overthrowing the Romans, of a new Jewish hegemony over the region and kind of globally, it is possible and likely that Judas holds these ideas as well. That Judas is a typical Jew. That's why would we expect otherwise? He's expecting a certain kind of kingdom. And could it be that Judas, expecting a certain kind of kingdom, is deeply disappointed by Jesus' obvious failure to take a kingdom? I think that's plausible. Is it then plausible also that in some part of Judas's mind, he thinks he might be driving Jesus to act? Now, we're, we're beyond the text. We're speculating, so hold this in speculation, of course. Judas knows that Jesus has power. He's seen this stuff. He knows what Jesus is capable of. Is he trying to make Jesus use the power? Remember, when Judas betrays Jesus, he betrays the three pieces of silver, and then when he realizes that they're going to kill Jesus and Jesus doesn't take power, Judas throws the silver away and hangs himself. He's horrified by what he's done. In my mind, I think the only person who's truly horrified by that is someone who maybe hoped for a different outcome. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too generous to Judas. I don't know. Now with this, and with what we know of his name and his heritage, is it not also possible that Judas has great pride in being a Jew, in Judaism, and in his people, and when he sees the Messiah doing the work of a servant, washing people's feet, he objects. I think this is plausible as well. If I have an idea of kingship and of nobility, and of my king doing things, and he comes and washes my feet, Maybe my idea of kingship begins to war against that and I can imagine something in Judas's mind saying this is wrong this is all wrong the messiah does not wash people's feet. And all this leads just to this small picture is it possible to see an act of trivial kindness would you like a piece of bread being the thing that breaks the camel's back I've had it I'm done being served by this I want a king not a waiter. And Satan entered in. So that's my hypothesis. Take it or leave it. But Satan does, we hear, enter in. And we need to think about how this might work. It seems clear from the scriptures that sin is a far broader category than just this one-time act. Um, We're really crippled by thinking of sin as just the individual sins. Like, I did this thing. I told this lie Um, I looked lustfully at this person, I did these drugs, I don't know, know, all these kind of things, like these one-time sin things that we look at. Um, But it's never just the one-time act. Judas doesn't become a sinner at this moment. Satan doesn't enter suddenly at that moment. There's a progression that leads up to this. Um, Our fixation on these particular sins causes us to miss what is a life, a state, a build-up, even just a whole environment of sinfulness, that leads to a certain kinds of actions. So uh, we'll look at a couple passages for a moment. James 1, verses 13 through 15 says the following. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So don't say that Jesus caused Satan to do these things. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's a progressiveness that moves along with our sinfulness. That it begins with a desire in the heart. The desire in the heart gives birth to kinds of sin. And sin in time gives birth to a kind of cancerous death that grows and it molds and it becomes worse inside us. Sin is progressive. I think that's the key I want you to hear. And then let's also look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Um, older translations used to say the phrase, give no foothold to the devil. Uh, foothold's a good word, I think, um, because it implies that um, the sin is this thing that happens and then the devil takes advantage of it, and it's not that he's in, it's not that he's in your life and doing things, it's that he's on the outskirts, and you need to deal with the foothold or he's going to move in further. Um, you have to deal with things in that sense. With Judas, it certainly looks like money is this foothold. Judas didn't deal properly with his relationship with money, and it became a foothold, and things kind of escalated from there. That seems uh, seems plausible to me. Uh, Third thing to consider is the story of Pharaoh in the Exodus. I'm not going to read the story, but as you remember, uh, there are some troubling phrases about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Uh, But what I want to remind you of is that Pharaoh is given an absolute astonishing amount of opportunities to change and repent. He's given all sorts of opportunities to say, no, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this. And each time he says, no, I'm going to stick with this. Remember, the beginning of the Exodus story is Pharaoh. Pharaoh believes he's a god, and his son is a god, all right? And by the end of the story, Pharaoh, the god, will be proved not a god, and his son will be dead to prove that his son's not a god. And how does the Exodus story begin for Israel? God says, I am God, and he says, Israel, you are my firstborn son. It's really intense relationships going on there. The point being is that Pharaoh resists over a long period of process. He had lots of opportunities to reject the devil's foothold. He resisted, and sin gives birth to death as a consequence of this long progression. So let's say this about Judas. Judas has given the devil a foothold. He's grown sin in his heart over a long process so that at this moment with Jesus, his actions bear fruit. Satan enters in. This is not a significant change in his trajectory. It's rather a confirmation of where he was. It's it's a fulfillment of the life that has been living. So let's pause. There's a really big background question here that I haven't addressed, and maybe this is in your head. Maybe you're asking yourself, Jeremy, do you really believe that Satan exists? And the answer is, the biggest answer is, Jesus does. I'm not inclined to disagree with Jesus about these things. Jesus uh, has conversations with Satan. Do you ever think about the temptation narrative? Satan tempts Jesus three times. He's alone in the wilderness. How did the disciples hear about that story? Unless Jesus sat down with them and said, hey, guys, so this time I was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. (laughs) How would you like to have been there for that day of teaching? (laughs) Yes, master, (laughs) you know? And Jesus told them, I think. Uh, We believe, we believe that there is a force of opposition to the kingdom of God. And that this force of opposition possesses personality. There's a personality that wants to oppose God's kingdom on earth. This force is not God's opposite. Satan is not the opposite of God. We're not dualists. Have you guys seen that really stupid meme of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling? You've seen, like, Jesus really muscular, and the devil's really angry, they're not opposites. Uh, the opposite of Satan is probably Michael the Archangel. If Jesus fought Satan, he would rip Satan's arm off and beat him to death with it. Like, there's just no contest. There's no contest. It says, Martin Luther's got that great song, One Little Word Shall Do Him Away. That's it. Jesus has to say, Be gone, and Satan's done. It's pretty cool. And and so we we give him too much credit when we think he's somehow God's equal. And in fact, we get this because Jesus defeated Satan at the temptation. When he resisted Satan, uh, that's when he, quote, unquote, tied the strong man. And then he goes through Galilee plundering Satan's house. And Satan's kind of in charge. Oh, you're a demon? Get out. Oh, you're sick? Be well. This is why he could just speak words and people are made well because he's defeated Satan already. And so this is uh, central to this narrative. Because of this, while we believe Satan is still active and powerful, his power is also, among other things, heavily limited. He can't do everything. He's got a lot of bluster. He makes you think he can do more than he can do. He is not omnipresent. Jesus can be every place at the same time with each person. He could be in your heart and your heart and your heart and my heart. My, you know, we can go all over the world, and we can never get away from Jesus. Satan can be in one place at a time. If you think about it, that's really good news. Um, <laughs> some of you may have thought in your life, I'm being tempted by Satan. Probably not, folks. He could be in one place at a time. He's busy with the Pope. When he was alive, he was trying to get at Billy Graham, right? And my guess is there's some poor woman in some third world country whose prayer life is more a threat to Satan's kingdom than all of us combined, and he's trying to get at her. So don't give him more credit than he's due. He's got minions, but Satan's probably never tempted any of you. He's also trying to work on entities and powers and nations. He's got a different agenda, all right? But he's not omnipresent. Good news is Satan is resistible, he could be stopped. He could be stopped soundly. As soon as Jesus shows up, it's the walls go up and nothing can happen. And so he's beaten. He's a defeated foe. And this is good news for us. So the biggest question, and the question I want to end with is this. How do we keep ourselves from being like Judas? How do we keep ourselves from being like Judas? Well, I think there's three things we can do. Number one, we could be filled with the Spirit. We could be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the number one thing you can do. And the good news is, according to Jesus in John chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, is that the Spirit comes and he does his work in you. It's not your effort that makes the Spirit more. It's the Spirit comes by our, we let him come, we let him reside in us, we let him have his way, and he does the work. All we have to do is stand firm. Uh, The first part of having been filled with the Spirit is just simply knowing Jesus, is having a commitment of faith in him. When you believe in Jesus, you get sealed with the Holy Spirit as the promise of the resurrection in you. This wonderful little tripart: having believed, you received and were sealed. Paul says in Ephesians one. So I'm going to use Jim again because I don't mind touching his forehead. So having, so here, Jim, stand up for a second. This is going to be fun. Yeah, that's right. So having having believed, so the act of belief happens in Jim's life. He receives the Spirit. The Spirit comes in as a deposit in him, and God takes, as if he has a seal. He goes, mine. Right. <laughs> All right, and now eternal life is yours. You get to come and you're with my kingdom for you can sit down. That was all. Thank you. Sorry. You want to see him, too? I don't know. I just wanted to pop you on the head. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, so the believer's inheritance, first of all, is the Holy Spirit, and He lives in each of us who have confessed our faith in Jesus Christ. You can't, like, ruin Him. You can't, like, really do away with him. You can't get rid of him. You can, you can be dull to him. You can limit his power. You can do all sorts of silly things. But you can't, once the Spirit's in you, it's God's work in you. And that's, that's pretty cool. So in addition to having the Spirit, you can ask to be filled with the Spirit. Every Christian has the Spirit as your inherited right. It doesn't mean you're full of the Spirit and being filled and having a prominent life in God's Spirit. Um, F.B. Meyer once preached a sermon. He talked about three types of people. There are people uh, the Christians whom the Spirit is present, that's all of you, who believe in Jesus, And there are Christians in whom the Spirit is prominent, so there's a deeper presence of the Spirit which shows up in their life and actions, and then there's Christians in whom the Spirit is preeminent. And you meet these people, and you're either like, I want that, or I'm terrified of what God might do to me. (laughs) And so each of you has this capacity to have more of the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do to get more Spirit is ask. God denies us no good gift that we ask Him of. My kids come to me, and they say, um, I don't know why I'm going to cry. My kids come to me, and they say, Dad, I want a drink. I don't give them crap. God wants to give you the good gifts (laughs) because he loves you. You're his kids. So ask. Ask. Just say the word. I want more spirit. And he's like, okay. Okay. We get spirit in community. Um, Christians are not creatures meant to be alone and living in solitude. We're meant to be in community with one another. We get together and we sing. Like some of you have great moments singing alone to worship Jesus, and you know that those moments can be wonderful, but they're no match for when you show up in a large group and all of you sing to Jesus, and suddenly it's like, wow, there's stuff happening. It's not like we can manipulate God, it's just that He likes being in big groups. And he likes to show himself up more. And each of you gets filled, and then each of you gets filled, and then we leak because we're broken vessels, and our leaking benefits other people around us, and it's just great stuff. So be filled. We get more of it in community. So that's number one, be filled with the Spirit. Number two, if you don't want to be like Judas, deal with sin rapidly. So don't give the devil a foothold. This doesn't mean don't sin. Now, hang on. That doesn't mean go sin either. (laughs) (laughs) In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, when it says don't give the devil an opportunity, don't give him a foothold, it means deal with things timely. It means have a restoration plan. Oh, I've sinned. I need need to confess. I need some community. I need some time. I need some prayer. I want to be made right with the Lord. This is a plan for being made right with the Lord, not a plan for like, I'm going to be perfect no matter what. The devil's smarter than you are. He'll find your imperfection and he'll whack you. Okay? Not the devil, his minions. None of, okay, we're, we covered that. C.S. <laughs> Lewis wrote in his uh, commentary on Milton, a preface to Paradise Lost, he wrote these words. He said, Continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. Continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. If you continually harden your conscience against the Holy Spirit's work, when he begins to niggle at you about something going on in your life, he'll begin to, your conscience will begin to be dulled and blinded and hardened. And then you will develop a habit, a disposition of sinfulness that will make it harder and harder to deal with your sinfulness. How do we get rid of this? Once again, we have the Spirit come upon us. Uh, John's going to say in just a few, uh, I don't know, a few verses, another chapter, he's going to say these wonderful words, the Spirit will come to convict you with regard to sin. It's not my job to convict you about sin. not my job to identify and be like, so. saw so you at the pub last week, you know, and make you feel bad for all sorts of things. No, it's the Spirit who does that, and the Spirit's going to do it in worship. And this is partly, I think, why more I got up and talked about what Spirit's work is doing in this in worship today. Thank you, by the way. You didn't know I was going to say this. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew that if you're offering your gift at the altar, and suddenly you remember that your brother has something against you, wait a minute, that means it's not I who did the wrong. It's not him who did the wrong. It's I who did the wrong to him. And I'm remembering while I'm about to worship that my brother has a problem with me because I sinned against him. He says, leave your gift, go make it right, then come back. And among other things, that tells me that sometimes it will be in the very moment of glorious worship when you remember, oh, I goofed. And that's not your mind treating you, tricking you to say, like, it's not, that's not the devil telling you, ha, 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 I'm going to take you from worship. That's God's spirit saying, fix it. Pay attention. So deal with sin rapidly. And lastly, number three, it is never too late to be restored. Be filled with the Spirit, deal with sin rapidly, and remember, it's never too late or never too far to make things right. What if Judas had waited? Have you thought about that? What if he'd waited one more day? What do you think would have happened? Judas and Peter are in strong comparison. Matthew makes this much more explicit than John does. They both deny Jesus. They both deny denying Jesus. We won't do it. Uh, they both commit acts of betrayal. They both, it says explicitly, they both mourn. Uh, Judas's mourning leads to suicide. Peter's mourning leads to him running off into the night. And the key difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter waited and was restored by his master. And Peter, because he waited, got to be a broken vessel for God's glory. And Judas didn't wait. He didn't look to be restored. So nobody here ever has to be a Judas. Never. Just wait on the Lord. Um, I'm sorry I've preached long. We're going to take some time now to pray. And I would like today, um, as we come for some worship, I'd like to invite you, if you want to be filled by the Spirit, to come receive prayer to be filled by the Spirit. Ask, and he'll give. It may not be the gift you want, It may not be a gift that makes you comfortable, but it will be him and you'll have that gift. Would you please uh, stand?